J.T. Crowley is talking books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. I'm J.T. Crowley and joining me today to talk about his debut book, Didn't Anyone Ever Tell You It's All a Game, is Andrew Mullaney from United Kingdom, the West Midlands to be precise. The book will appeal very much to those concerned readers who love non-fiction. Now, this book has been a lifetime's work for Andy, and he's drawn upon his own personal experiences, stemming back to his childhood as an only child, where he faced bullying and peer pressure to succeed. That brought him to the edge of his abilities, as well as the experience he has faced in his professional life in finance. He's married to Catherine, his wife, and he has two grown-up children, Sarah and James. Andy, welcome to Talking Books. Thank you, John. I'm really, really grateful for you inviting me on. Greetings from Starbridge. You're very welcome. And of course, I know Starbridge very well myself. We both love football and perhaps me a little bit more on the line of rugby. And uh, we've both got a very good mate, Andy, who has been very kind to link us up, haven't we? Yeah, Andy's been absolutely instrumental in making our, our uh, connection possible. Um, and certainly, you know, John, I'm looking forward to you and I sharing a beer at some stage in the future. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think I'll have to twist your arm now, won't I? <laughs> Andy, I've, I've looked at your book and I can see that this is your, um, your life's work, packed, and I mean packed, uh, very much so, into 500 pages and you know into you know and it's your life-changing events which have not only impacted on you but those that you've counted along the way this is what this book is about isn't it mentoring and what you've experienced very much so john i mean i've always really enjoyed mentoring i've, I've loved being mentored I, I love mentoring other people i love hearing people's stories i love understanding what makes people tick what makes them become the people that they are, what challenges have they faced, what, you know, what goals are they trying to seek and what are they trying to get from life. Everybody is different. With 7 billion of us on this planet, there's 7 billion different definitions of success. And I'm really, really keen to try to help people to understand how they can unlock the very, very best from people and for them to become the best versions of themselves, not only as mentors, but also the people who they mentor as well, the mentees. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a really, really good opportunity, I felt, that when I finished my working career, um, or paid working career, as I would call it, I, I don't like to think of myself totally as retired, but to take the opportunity to stand back to look at my life, to assess what I've done, what have I achieved, where have I gone? And then suddenly the book started to evolve as I was finishing a mentoring session with Ellie, um, who was a young graduate who was seeking employment. Uh, and it, was, it, it became a, a, one of those instances where you wake up in the middle of the night uh, and you are drawn to write. Uh, I've never had it before, and 13th of August 2019, I woke up four in the morning, started writing the book, 
had the title, the chapters in front of me. Um, it was it, it, it was almost spiritual, really. I think the way that it happened. And 16 months later, I stopped writing. Yeah, a lot of authors do that. They get inspiration in the middle of the night. They've got a notepad by the side of the bed, like me. <laughs> so it works. Um, I was intrigued when I looked at your book, Andy, and I saw a common theme here. And you, you start each chapter uh, with a quote from a famous person. Yeah. And I looked at these quotes, and, you know, they're quotes from Morrissey, um, Jeff Bezos, Michelle Obama, Elon yeah. Musk, um, Elton John, uh, Stephen Hawkins. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wiz Khalifa, don't forget Wiz Khalifa. I had to learn who Wiz Khalifa was. So <laughs> <laughs> no. it's even got Lucille Ball in here and Dolly Parton. Um, and, and, and they're just, you know, just to name a few. And then I noticed that at the end of each chapter, Andy, uh, you end them with a bullet points um, under the two headings, um, which is poignant to the, you know, to the name of the book itself. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got the bullet points about oh, the quick wins and the ladders. And then you've got the other section is, um, you know, and the traps and the snakes. Where did you get the idea to top and tail your chapters like this? That's, that's a great question, John. I mean, the, the book itself, I, I take a theme of snakes and ladders throughout the whole, the whole of the book. So if you've ever played the game with snakes and ladders, which most of us have at some stage, you know that you roll the dice, you progress up a ladder if you land on that square, uh, and if you uh, roll the dice and you land at the top of a snake, you slither right the way down. Um, and I see... Right, don't you? Yeah, and I see life very much like that, you know, and, and so consequently, I, I, I do believe that we are in a lot more control of our destiny than we realise, and that quite often we go through life very unconsciously. Um, so, so for me, um, I guess it's very much around um, making sure that people can understand that they don't have to read the whole book they can take the bullet points that they want. And a, a really great example of this is I was talking to my cousin about it only a few weeks ago, and he was telling me about his son who has um, ADHD and, and a form of autism. Uh, and he said he, says, he, said, uh, he would never be able to play through the whole book. He would find that difficult. But you present him with the bullet points, and they go, yeah, yeah, I can take that. I can take that. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, the lad started to look at the book, and he's gone, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll just flip to the end pages. Well, that's fine, you know, because it's just a summary, and we all learn in different ways. Uh, and it was just brought home to me that I thought, rather than doing a concluding paragraph at the end of each chapter, I'd literally just do the bullet points, because everybody's attention span is different. And so if I can show people the quick wins, where can they win? How can they do it? And it's literally just bang, 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 bullet points. Now, how can you avoid the snakes? Bang, bang, bang. Well, you know, that for me is really, really important because that's at the crux of it. But if you want to know the whole story, well, actually, read the whole chapter. And, of course, the quotes, they, um, they mirror what's in that chapter, don't they? You are yeah. starting to tell the people, this is what's in this yeah. chapter. And I, and I did an awful lot of research for that, John, um, to try to make sure that I got them right. I, I, must have, I must have gone through two or three thousand quotes. I mean, if you look at the uh, you look at the references at the back uh, at the back of the book that I've used, I've used 
probably more about books on quotations than anything else because I wanted to get them right. And as I say, you know, I, I, I have to ask my kids who is Khalifa was. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought these, they're quirky, some of these guys. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, I mean, I, you know, I've looked across your book and I've read a lot of the chapters and I've looked at the endings and I've been intrigued by the quotes. And there are some chapters that really have stood out to me more than others. And I think that's, you know, the same with any book. So I want to take you to chapter 12, if you don't mind. And um, Now, this chapter, you headed up Dare to Dream and Never Say Never, where you quote uh, from Ralph Marston. And the quote is, Dare to visualise a world in which you most treasured dreams have become true. And you also touch upon uh, Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. And of course, that's a very famous poem. And it's all about if you can keep your heads when all about you are losing theirs. That wonderful poem. And of course, you talk about in that chapter, you refer to Dr. Martha Luther's iconic speech, which he gave in uh, Washington, D.C. in 1963. That is August 1963 because in the United States, 63 was a very significant year, A from Dr. Martin Luther King, and then of course, John F. Kennedy got assassinated in Dallas in November. Um, I just wondered, you know, why you chose those, um, to talk about those people, that poem, uh, mention that speech. Are the words in that poem and in that speech so important to you that you put them in the book? Absolutely. Uh, the the Kipling quote in particular is very very special to me um, as a as a child, and, and and this book is very cathartic as well. And it's not an autobiography, but I do draw on my own experiences. Um, we are all, I believe, products of our upbringings. Um, my parents were born during the war years, uh, just before and then during the war years, and grew up in a very very hard environment of rationing in the UK. It was a difficult, difficult time for the country. Um, Aspirations were pretty low. Um, And I think I, as a child, was a dreamer. You know, I loved to dream. I loved to visualise. I loved to think of where I could go, what could happen. But all too often, that dream was suppressed, um, not, not out of anything other than kindness and love for me, but it was trying to say, this is as far as I think you can go. Uh, and I wanted to constantly keep pushing the boundaries further. And that's why, you know, I, I read Kipling's If when I was a teenager, and, and, and it just hit me so hard. Um, it became something that, that, that I had printed out, uh, that, I, that I had as a scroll. My son's now goes in his bedroom. I, I believe as human beings we should dream. I don't think we should ever stop dreaming. I think we should reach for the stars. We should be allowed to go as far as we want to go. Nobody should ever say to a child or say to anyone, you cannot do this without real, real qualification. And even then, I find it very, very difficult to say why somebody should say no to somebody. I think it's that that important. And Martin Luther King's speech, well, that, that kind of like set the pattern for, for some of my youth. Um, where, you know, people people should share the dreams as well with other people. Martin Luther King's dream was for a better world, a better society. And I believe because of that, society did improve. We've still some way to go. Make no bones about it. But as a young teenager, 
uh, growing up in the 70s, I was desperate for the world to be even. I was desperate for us all to have an even playing field because that's the way that society moves on. Um, but dreaming and never saying never, my God, we've got a dream. We've got a dream, John. It's the way that the world improves. It's the way that the world gets better. We, it's the way we take our species forward. Oh, I absolutely agree. And, of course, the dream speech was about um, equality. And, um, absolutely. Um, and, yes, we've got a dream. If you don't have dreams, you know, um, where would the world be? We need to dream. Absolutely. The world would, would, would never have taken on the shape and the form that it is now. Uh, our, imag our imagination is, is one of the, again, one of the many, many things that we have as human beings. And I love, and, and I love the fact that we can do it. That's why I've created the Dreamcatcher uh, Pro Formula, which is a which is an appendix at the back of the book, which is to help people capture the dreams. So you know, D R E A M S, the date you set the dream, the reason, what environment is needed, what activities are you going to do, how are you going to measure the dream, you know, and then finally, what does success really look like? And you can change it, you can rip it up, you can do whatever you want to with it. But dream, please, dream. Yeah, and because it also comes to this a bit in your books, it's not, not one size fits all, but then it comes to that later. Yeah. Uh, but I want to take now, um, Andy, to the next chapter, chapter 13. Yeah. And this is a chapter, now you quote David Seabury, uh, manage yourself first and others will take your orders. Uh, of course, you're talking about managing those who manage you, um, mm. how to deal and understand the different ways to manage and trust people um, and how to avoid the cliches like one size fits all and also you know, for not making assumptions. Now, we all make the assumptions. So when I look at the scenarios, um, how do they fit within your own life here, Andy? Do you want to tell the listeners here? the viewers? Yeah, I, I, th I think, you know, we, we go through life with all sorts of different role models that we can, that, that we may have if we're lucky. Um, but in the main, some of us will have uh, a, an adult or a parental guardian type of figure who, who sets a standard for you or, or, or not in some cases, but who is an authoritarian figure. And then we move through school, we move through college, university, we get into the working world, and then eventually we become um, leaders um, and managers ourselves. We become parents if we're lucky. Um, you know, we, we then pass the baton on to the next generation. For, for me, it's very, very much around making sure that those people who are the authoritarian figures in your life or those people who are giving you direction, you actually know how to get them on side, how to work with them, how to collaborate with them, um, and to make sure, again, that you, you, you know that the sky can really, really, really be the limit with a really, really good meeting of minds, but honesty, truth, um, and a really, really good understanding of where everybody else is coming from. Uh, and so I, I've talked in, in the book about what good collaboration looks like and how that person will manifest themselves if you are lucky enough to have somebody who is like that in your life. Um, I've also gone to the polar opposite, where you've got somebody who is a micromanager and somebody who is, uh, who is so authoritarian um, 
and and actually just wants to uh, just wants to own you. And so I've tried to try to give pointers about how to get the best out of both of those types of people and both those types of scenario. And then I've also covered off somebody who may be less dynamic, uh, somebody who perhaps is not necessarily a weak a weak figure in your life, but somebody who is who is a bit. Vanilla, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. Um, and with that sort of person, you always make sure you cover your back and you never, ever assume. You always get clarity. Uh, you know, I think both you and I have experienced all kinds of managers in our lives. You know, as you says, the micro one, uh, the one who lives, lets us just, you know, get on with it. And sometimes, you know, you manage to, to talk to people about things. And you've only been able to answer that because of something that's happened in your own life, your own experience has come into play and you've passed that experience mm -hmm. on. And sometimes that just comes with, um, I mean, for both of us, we're not exactly um, in the spring of youth. Uh, we're um, probably late summer in our lives. Thanks, John. Um, that's <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> um, so we can pass these experiences on and I think that is vital, don't you? Uh, absolutely, and that's why I've, I've willingly shared my experiences. I mean, I, I, I was the victim. I, well, I, I say the victim. I, I consider myself a survivor, uh, and I, I survived somebody who, who was out to ruin my game of life, who, who, who was an out-and-out -out bully, uh, and who wanted me, uh, who wanted to micromanage me and wanted me into the absolute, absolute... He wanted to put me into a box and then keep bringing that box smaller and smaller so that I, I totally fitted the mould that he wanted. And, and I just couldn't do it, but he broke me for a while. Um, and, and then, and then I, I, I later emerged with the help of a, a, a lot of people, particularly my wife, particularly my family, uh, and some very, very good friends. And then having a boss at some stage who took over who, who, who saved me, who is a... Now a very, very close friend and somebody I, re I, I feel privileged to know. Well, I had uh, people who tried to, um, you know, put me as a round circle into the square and it didn't yeah. work. And they just gave up in the end and said, look, do it your way. And it worked. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, you know, surviving at life. And this is what all your book is about, is telling yeah. people different ways to do things. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go to chapter 20, if you don't mind, please. That's <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go to chapter 20 here. Guys, you've got to go and have a look at chapter 20. And there's some other chapters in here, guys, I'm going to tell you. You've got to go and thinking, what's he talking about here? Let's go to chapter 20. And um, it's here that, you know, in your book where you talk about going it alone, um, the brave and the bold business creators. I salute you. You know, that's the title of the chapter. Absolutely. And you chose um, the, the person, uh, Karen Brady, who is a truly inspirational woman in her own right, um, you know, for the quote. And let's talk, let's, I'm going to quote what she said here. The most important characteristic you need to succeed in business are resilience, determination, and persistence. So, Andy, would you like to tell the listeners, the viewers, a little more about this side of the book and why you're talking about some of these issues here? Uh, absolutely. I, I, not everybody can go the whole career like I did, working for one employer. They may work for a number. 
But what, I t- what I'm finding more and more of, there's more and more people who want to go it alone. There's more and more people who want to set themselves up in business, whether that be uh, as a, as a, a, a business uh, that, that produces uh, physical output. Um, it, it could even be a business that is for social good, a social enterprise. But there are so many people out there that so many people struggle to seem to understand the way in which that, that can happen. They seem to struggle to understand how to go and how to, how to go about getting started. Now, I call these people who do go down this route brave because I believe they are. I think they are incredibly brave. I think they're bold. Um, and they do create business. And again, it goes back to the dreaming. That will have emerged from a dream, from using their talent and, and, and somewhere along the line. So what I've tried to do is to give people a whole series of, of tips, bullet points, um, examples of things that they need to give some consideration to if they are going to set themselves up in business, if they're going to go out there and they're going to put themselves out there, well, how can I help them to be a force for good and cover off as well as all of the, um, I suppose, some of the sexy stuff, I'd also say as well, some of the basic but critical, you know, get a good accountant, get a good bank manager, get a good solicitor, you know, cover off all of these things, make sure you've got your tax sorted, make sure that you cover off all of the, all of the basics that you've got the framework and the foundation for your business so that then you can then move forward with real strength, with real confidence, knowing that actually it's your talent that's going to shine. You aren't going to fall down or fall down one of the snakes. You're not going to go down one of those because you've forgotten something. I, I don't think I've covered absolutely everything, but I've covered most of the things in there. Yes, we all need to avoid the snakes. Um, and, and, and talking about the snakes, um, I want to go to your chapter 29. And it's headed up. Uh, so important. Uh, making some mistakes is okay. Um, with an extract from John Wooden, um, intriguingly enough, the American basketball coach for the UCLA Bruns. And his quote, which you have, head of the chapter up is if you're not making mistakes then you're not doing anything i'm positive that a doer makes mistakes um now this part of the book um you talk about learning from mistakes taking risks and avoiding making the same mistakes so when you made mistakes andy um how did you go about you know you know, not making the same mistake again? And how do you pass this on, these experiences on to the people that you mentor? I think that's a great question, John. Um, I, I make mistakes, I'm fallible like all of us. Uh, and and I, I'm, I, no doubt I, I will go out there over the next few days and I will make a mistake of some sort. I may be on the road and I may do something that I do unconsciously that cheeses another driver off. I, I, I may do that. But the important thing, John, is that you don't make the same mistake twice. You don't keep going over the same old ground and you don't keep doing the same things again. You learn from those. And this is why I'm trying to talk to people about going through life a lot more consciously. I think if we can go through life a lot more consciously, 
then we will be not only aware of the way that we operate as individuals, but we'll be more aware of other people as well. Making mistakes is okay because that's the way that we learn. Uh, and, and all too often in this world, there's, there's too much of a clamour for perfection. And I see this so often, particularly with some of the younger people that I'm mentoring, that they, 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 they become frightened, almost frightened to jump out there and to jump into the water. Well, actually, that's the way that you, that, that's the way that you learn. But the key is to learn and then not keep making the same mistake again to then move forward. Um, I also think it's important as well that we focus on the positives from making mistakes. And I use an example in the book where I, I, I came running home from school one day over the moon because I've got 99 out of 100 in spelling and I was top of the class. Way well done, Andy. You know, patting myself on the back as I ran down the road, desperate to tell my mum, walked through the door and I said to my mum, I said, great, I've got 99 out of 100 in spelling. And my mum said, so which one did you get wrong? And I'm like, no, I, I, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was it was lieutenant, but in, in to our American friends, that's lieutenant. Well, the yeah. the, the teacher pronounced it lieutenant, yeah. uh, so I, I spelled as lieutenant. But the fact that I've come top was totally lost. So then my dad comes home from work, and my mom says, "You'll never guess which one he got wrong. It was lieutenant." How many times did we go that, over that with him? So my dad made me write it out ten times. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, instead, well, instead of Instead of learning from it, it kind of created a yeah. different truth. Yeah. Um, let's go to chapter 35, Andy. It's caught, you know, and this one is, you know, briefly headed up with, you know, coping and embracing change. Of course, a lot of people, a lot of us struggle with uh, change. And, you know, and I understand that change can have a significant impact on people's lives, you know, on their mental health and, you know, and their well-being. And you chose Doug Baldwin here for the quote. And, you know, the former American football wide receiver who signed for Seattle Seahawks for the quote to go with this chapter. Do you want to broaden on this um, little adventure here? Why this is in the book? Coping with an embracing change is really important for me. Um, I think I first became aware consciously of how change works when I went on a training course one day and somebody presented me with the Kubler-Ross model, which is a, uh, which is a curve uh, which shows how, uh, how we cope with bereavement. Um, and, and I started to understand a lot more about my own reaction to change. Um, and so I decided to try to take this a little bit further so that I broke it down for people so that it was more understandable and more relevant. We have change come at us every single day. And it comes at us at a pace. Quite often, we can't we can't change it. Sometimes, you know, change will will come at us where we we may have a bereavement, and that change can take years and years, as it did in my case, to even come towards anything like resolution. But for some people, change can be almost instantaneous. Yeah, you, know, you can get in the car, and your car your car won't work. Well, that's change because you've got to know how to cope with it. You know, and, and there's no point in getting angry and bashing your car with a stick or something like that because the car's still there and it still needs to it still needs to be allowed. It still needs to be fixed. There's no point in blaming yourself and blaming other people that the car's not working and then going into all the chaos and confusion that that brings because the sooner you can accept that your car's not working and you've got to get it fixed quickly, the better. But 
all too often as human beings, we, we, we sit in this area of blame and chaos and confusion. We can't make sense of the change. Well, the quicker we can go to acceptance, the quicker we can then start to move on and do something positive about it. Now, I'm not saying let's change all human emotion because some changes actually for some people are totally unacceptable. They can't accept that change and that's okay but just consciously know where you are in the change cycle. And that's why I've put seven steps together to help people to understand how they can progress themselves through change. I'm intrigued as to, I had to look at this chapter, chapter 48, Andy, and you had this up as energy terrorists, toxic friends, the psycho boss, (laughs) and a few time thieves. And the quote you did was from Peter Diamandis from New York, the Greek-American known for the, being the chairman of the X Prize Foundation. And his saying was, never tolerate a toxic person in your organisation. Can you very briefly? Absolutely. John, I, I, I firmly believe that there are um, a lot of people out there who um, will... Uh, have their own agenda, whether they are, again, you know, a psycho boss, um, whether they are out to steal your time, um, whether they try to get themselves into your world and try to get themselves into your circle and try to own you. Some people have have a unique agenda. And what I'm trying to get people to be aware is that there are people out there who may not present themselves as they seem to you. And so consequently, they can have a great impact on you and eventually come to almost own your life, really, if you like That's powerful. Andy, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Everybody, this is Andy Mullaney. He's from the West Midlands in the UK. Um, So what I say to you guys is, you know, this book is a powerful, scorching, at times emotional and ethereal book, and it transgresses the many complex issues that... Surround, um, as he says, surviving and winning at life. So go and have a look at Andy's book, and everybody, on any social platform that you use to go and buy your books. But for me, I'm left to say thank you very much, Andy. I'm JT Crowley. Stay safe.